Welcome to the first One World Media podcast. One World Media is a non-profit committed to excellence in media coverage of the wider world. We believe the best media highlights our common humanity, breaks down prejudice, and enables new voices to be heard. In this episode, Channel 4 news journalist John Snow is in conversation with the Right Honourable David Lammy, Labour MP for Tottenham since June 2000. He has campaigned for diversity to be included in the BBC's charter as a public purpose. John and David speak about how the developing world is portrayed in British media, along with a Q&A from the audience. We begin with David and what he sees as the root cause of the flawed narrative when it comes to Africa. Lazy journalism happening every single day. You've got no conception of what's happening in Africa and what's, what's taking place on a daily basis. You turn the country Not into... Not any explanation as to why it's growing 5.6%. Absolutely. Mm. So this gets into another part of this story, which is um, how a number of important players conspire to help with this narrative. I've been critical um, in the last period of comic relief. Um, a lot of people warned me off being critical of a much-loved charity... Uh, and I want to put on record that I know that Comet Relief do some fantastic things on the ground in countries across the world. But what I was extremely critical of, because I believe for Comet Relief there's a huge burden because they are the only charity blessed with hours and hours of broadcasting that is funded by the audience in this room, uh, through the licence fee, and to whom much is given, a burden is expected. It is absolutely not acceptable to use those hours to perpetuate an image of Africa that is, and, there, and you would never, ever do this. You would never, over a seven-hour show, I saw three or four black children die on screen. Would you do that with a white child? You'd never do it. I saw white on the whole celebrities, narrating on behalf of black people in Africa. In the English segments, English people narrated for themselves. No mention of the fact that £9 billion in remittances is sent back from people in countries like Britain, much more than in aid, by the way. This narrow, and it's not just obviously comic relief, too many of the NGOs are still doing this, you know, pledge five pounds and you can send a child to school. You can, it, it's so, you make the African so passive, so dormant. How, have, how has the narrative moved on? So you've got even, if you like, our liberal NGOs pandering and actually saying that we're going to help Africa. But what they're doing is actually perpetuating a myth about no middle class, no issues of trade, no issues of transparency, no challenge to the audience. You're perpetuating something that's been perpetuated since empire. And it's right across our mainstream media. And it's also why you can find yourself in a situation when there's a fire in Grenfell and you look at black and brown people running out that, that chooses to um, question why are they there? Have they got the appropriate papers? Assume they're not working when these are the people that are the engine of our economy. It's all the same thing. And let's call it what it is. Uh, what it is, is most often a sort of white supremacist understanding. Begun several hundred years ago, 
because there is no such thing as race, let me just say that. There's only one race, the human race. It's a political construct designed to preference a small group of people a few hundred years ago, create a pecking order and make actually quite a lot of money. And it still runs through much that we see today. And I'm so excited by a younger generation of people, I can see them in the audience, who are beginning to challenge this myth. I just wish that the baby boomers, who are the editors of our newspapers, the commissioners of our TV stations, and our journalists would catch up with the millennials and actually start calling this stuff out for what it is. Uh, I mean, in, in talking about the media, the British media, one has to think about who staffs it. What I have found very interesting is that there have been sort of very feeble attempts to diversify. And the thing which has made the biggest impact in our company has been apprenticeships, skipping university and going straight to the workplace. And these are young people, all of whom have grown up in the digital age, for whom tasks that some people my age might find difficult, but they find absolutely, totally normal, natural stuff, which they've known from the cradle, and everything is extrapolated from everything they already knew, and therefore it's no very great struggle to work there. And what that's resulted in, certainly at ITN, is that we have more Afro-Caribbeans, we have more Asians, and we have more women. What is interesting is that the culture of the company is so strong that people want to be successful within that culture. And therefore, their temptation to say, by the way, do you know what's going on in my homeland of Nigeria? And we'd like to hear it, but, we, but that is not volunteered. And you have to reach a point where people have become so comfortable and confident within the organization that they can begin to retrieve their own roots to promote you know, because if they don't, nobody else is going to. I mean, that's the problem. I mean, I can say with earnestness that I actually did voluntary service overseas in Uganda. And that I did actually mention that she had flown from Uganda. Because any mention of Uganda by me, if I'm, as far as I'm concerned, is a plus, plus, plus. Because I can't mention it too often. Um, but so I'm not sure how you move from this moment of being able to embrace into your organization the people who are going to change its makeup, but also give them the confidence to retrieve their roots and play them for all the strength they have. There's a number of points here. Um, Let's pick an organisation. I'm going to pick the BBC. Since 1999, the BBC has had about 30 initiatives on diversity. Um, It's moved the dial probably about 2% in terms of diversity. It's still an organisation wholly unrepresentative of the country, um, and it's certainly unrepresentative of the country at the top of the organisation. On the board, you won't see any diversity in relation to racial diversity, and certainly on the executive team, you won't see any diversity also. So that is an example, and and if you talk to the BBC about these things, like a lot of organisations, in the diversity space, I hate the phrase, and I hate the phrase BAME, by the way, I'm not jargon. I'm proud to be of African descent, but also very proud to be British. You talk to the organisation, they will talk to you. They'll want to nudge the conversation very quickly onto the pipeline, uh, onto who comes into the organisation. They will not want to talk to you about what happens when you get into the organisation, about why you people leave. 
the organisation, about why people aren't promoted in the organisation, and why, if we wanted to have a conversation about who will be the next Director General of the BBC, it's a cosy conversation of three or four names stitched up. (laughs) They're already out there, and believe me, none of them are ethnic minorities. When I launched, as I had to do yet again, question, if you like, who gets to go to Oxford and Cambridge? What do they do? Very quickly, they said it's a pipeline issue. It's the schools that are... We've got no responsibility here. It's not our fault that kids in Sunderland and Hartlepool and Knowsley and Salford didn't come to Oxford last year. It's the schools' fault they're not good enough. When, in fact, the schools in America, generally speaking, most people of all political stripes would say are considerably worse than ours, yet... If you go to Harvard or Yale, those institutions are more representative of the country. Why? Because they write to the kid in Hartlepool, in their context, in Harlem, who gets the straight A's and say, please apply and you will come for free. Oxford and Cambridge never do that. It means that you will not become the director general of Mm. the future BBC. It's a closed shop. That leads to the fundamental point that hits behind your question, John. People are sick of initiatives and incremental change. They want systemic change. And systemic change means that there will be, and John, I know that you are so seasoned, you take no offence at this and lead the charge, but it will mean that there are white upper middle class men who have to get off the stage. (laughs) These guys, these guys have been benefiting from affirmative action every day, every week, and they don't even realise it. Just let some others, let some women, let some minorities step up and get a piece of the cake. That is systemic change. That is the conversation no one wants to have. Let me say in relation to this country, it won't solely be on ethnicity and race. It has to be, obviously, on social class as well. And that's why when I did the work on Oxbridge recently, it wasn't just about race. Some of the media turned it, wanted to turn it. It was absolutely about geography and social class as well. And that's the profound change. It means you have to leave the stage. And guess what? If the odd young person from Eton did not get into Oxbridge as a result of this and went to Warwick instead. They would still end up running the corporations and all the rest of it anyway. We just have a few more black, brown and female faces that would share the pie. And the reason why the Commons has got better at this stuff, if you look at the amount of women in the Commons, because of all women's shortness in the Labour Party, because to give him some credit, David Cameron led the way with his lists, and a lot of those lists, the, 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 the general direction was we want women selected. Because of that, the Commons is a better place, making better decisions, in my view. You have to act affirmatively. The initiatives, the incrementalism, the perpetual conversations about pipeline and apprenticeships, it's all for the birds, unless people are prepared to step off and let others take their place. Well, um, I think we could take... It's not for me to hog the questioning. We could take some points from... Yes, go for it. Hi. I worked in advertising for 10 years and then funded myself to go and do an MA in journalism um, and got an internship at The Economist that was paid and that was brilliant. But what I found is 
the, the exact problem is that half the kids in my MA that were brilliant and talented and came from diverse backgrounds and got scholarships, what we, what we can't get into, we can't get paid jobs. And the, the mediocre kids, frankly, who can do unpaid internships for free, they're the ones that can get the boost on their CVs. And they're, like, doing so much better now because they can literally work for no money um, because they're funded by their, their families and, and whatever. And it's just, like, you can be mediocre and well off and get the, the one or two paid jobs that there are. I mean, they're just, like, no jobs. And all the kids that were just really, really brilliant, hardworking. I mean, one of the guys that hardworking guy from outside Manchester he's working at London Eye for the last the last year because he just can't work one day for free and so it's like I guess I, I just want to say like that step off the bridge like unpaid internships is the biggest killer and block to talent in, in, in general that, that's just what I've seen that, that, that's why apprenticeships are a much much better bet um, but no one else is doing them like well, I, I think really the BBC is actually just starting. Yeah, um, I mean, and they need to be done on a big scale. I mean, ba basically, the government needs to take a lead and say, we're actually going to give you a tax advantage. For every apprentice you take, we'll give you X, Y, Z, whatever. I mean, that's the way government can help. But they're not cracking down on unpaid intentions. HMRC, like, don't investigate. I, I think, actually, you'd have to dig a bit deeper than just the fact of it being paid. So let's just step up slightly from that to what is the bigger conversation and it's certainly not a conversation that's limited to ethnicity and race at all um what is the big divide in our society there are some on the extreme right that want to push the idea that the big divide is between the immigrant coming and taking lots of jobs and the rest of us uh it's an old myth that um has been pushed around for many years but they would say that that's the reason why for example communities want to exit the European Union and push leave. The big divide in our society is between those who are probably in London or the South East and who are my age and John's, are up to John's. And we are part... <laughs> uh, we are part of the asset class. We have assets. We own our own home or homes. Uh, we can... We've seen growth in those assets. We can borrow against those assets. Our kids can stay in the four or five bedroom house while they do the internship, which goes to your point. Or actually, we can borrow against the asset to give them a deposit for their own home. So the gap is between those folk and, and those who have no assets. And those who have no assets can often be in a seaside town or a northern town, actually. Uh, and that's why this is not racial at all. Um, or they're of a younger generation and their parents are not in that fortunate position. That is the divide. And we need a politics that is seeking to bridge that divide, get underneath that divide. I don't actually think it's as simple as, as you just create internships because what you often find is the sharp middle classes get the internships if that's the mm -hmm. way up. Mm -hmm. You have to means test you have to get down into the granularity. You have to be on it, which is why I challenged Oxford and Cambridge. Get your asses up to Sunderland and Hartlepool. Find the kids who got their straight A's at GCSE. Write to them, speak to them, tell them they can come for free. Because money talks when you're from a poorer background. You know, this is an interesting thing about apprenticeships. Actually, the middle classes don't apply for them uh, because they want to go to university. 
So they haven't got yet realized they will scoop their way right up fast. Well, if they go in. That's because you have to scrap A levels. You have to scrap A levels. If you create and keep the academic, you, basically, I would say Britain is still a great country to be if you are academic, if you live in London or the South East, you go to a Russell Group University, it's one of the best countries in the world. If you want a vocational offering, I'm afraid there are better countries than this. You want to be in Finland, you want to be in Germany, you probably want to be in Australia. And that's the challenge. Unless you properly equalise, unless the middle classes want vocational routes for their own kids, forget it. All the rest of it is this incremental initiative-itis that's the same old, same old. At the back. We've spoken a lot about diversity, but the, the issue also is, is who's telling these stories. I mean, just by having more on black and Asian people in TV doesn't mean that you get to tell stories in an authentic way. And you're talking about um, the image of Africa. Um, I mean, I, I'm a filmmaker. I grew up in Newham. I had no one in TV in my my family. Um, I struggled for many years to get um, into TV um, and I find as an independent filmmaker to tell independent stories is very, very hard because you're not following the narrative that a lot of people in TV want to hear. You're not telling, you're not prepared. You know, it, it's who, who's going to fund you to make those stories? Who, who's funding independent filmmakers? A lot of TV says, well, you know, we, we want news stories. We want, um, to, we take risks. But the fact is they don't want to give risks. It, it, you know, it's sort of down to money and, and who they want to um, give the funding to in order to make those stories. And how do you push past the narratives that are out there, the dominant narratives, in order to get other stories out there, especially if you're an independent filmmaker? Well, uh, interestingly, I think we're going through a phase where some broadcasters are wanting to look for something different because we're all the same. You know, and actually, this is one way in which you could you could produce something different. And I, I think, you know, to some extent, that is what Channel Four's tried to do down the years. I mean, you know, uh, it comes and goes, and of course, a lot of it is money dependent. And you know, advertising's flooding off to Facebook and rest, rather than flooding into Channel Four. Um, but it, it's partly about about money. But a lot of people are looking for ways to try to to try to make their offering more interesting. And the only way they can think of is actually do films about places nobody knows anything about, about people nobody knows anything about. Well, let, well, let, well, well that, that's the point. You need to know who the point people are in these organisations. And, I mean, in our organisation, we do. We have a million pounds devoted entirely to independent productions. And that's in the Channel 4 News. And you just have to know the person who's doing it, Daisy Aliff, daisy.alif at itn.co.uk. And say, look, I've got a brilliant film about Gambia. Um, are you interested? Let me take your question yeah, in. Uh, thanks. Uh, my name's Mel Bunce, and I'm a researcher at City University uh, in Journalism, and we actually just co-edited a, a book on the uh, media image of Africa. Um, and one of the really interesting things that came through is actually that there's far, far more business reporting and economic reporting on Africa than ever before. Um, and I don't mean just the Africa rising kind of story that's very simplistic, but also business journalism, just generally. And I actually think this might raise some concerns as well, because as the general news budgets are dropping, actually business journalists still actually have quite healthy budgets. So mm. Reuters, Bloomberg, lots of organisations like this are starting to kind of take over a lot of the storytelling. Um, I'd just be interested to hear if you have any thoughts on 
maybe this idea that we move beyond just talking about positive and negative coverage and actually think about how do we get more complex coverage, more thematic storytelling? Yeah, that's a very fair point. Um, although you, you could make an argument that the opportunity to make money in Africa has never really been off the grid. Um, in, in, in Western economies, but I don't want to be too cynical because I, I, I also recognise and have seen across the business a, a, a breadth of stories about growth, although it's a, it's, a, it's a very niche market, isn't it, in terms of who is actually listening and, and, and reading that kind of material. Um, I come back to the point that when Leeds University did research on where young people in Britain, this is school-age young people, get their biggest images, their biggest, uh, where they form their opinions on Africa, when Leeds did this work, um, uh, it was comic relief. It was Red Nose Day. That was where they got their biggest and most powerful sense of the continent of Africa. And that's why I have been so uh, robust um, in my in my conversations with Comet Relief. I might say also, it would be wrong of me not to put on record, Comet Relief has a new chief exec that is very, very seized of these issues um, and certainly has a desire to change the day particularly. But I think the other question also was about who tells these stories and how you do it. You do have to ring fence funding. I'm pleased that Channel 4 are doing that in the area of news. And, you know, we're seeing in the figures, at least on diversity, that Channel 4 um, uh, is ahead of some of the other broadcasters. It's also Perhaps interesting... I could enter a boast there. Channel 4 News had 2 billion uh, viewings on Facebook last year. Uh, I mean, so that's getting yeah. 40% of them in California, which may tell you something about American news. Yeah, yeah. well, uh, um, uh, and uh, the other, alongside Channel 4, it's also interesting to see... The, the biggest commercial, well, one of our bigger commercial providers, Sky, is also doing well. Why? Because Sky knows who buys its box sets. And Sky will cater for them. You know, I do a lot of current affairs. I'm on all over the shows all the time. Um, I'm on Channel 4 News a lot, of course. But second to Channel 4 News, I go on to Sky, um, and I've got two... Um, um, ethnic minority broadcasters interview. You never see that on the BBC, ever. Just doesn't happen. You look at the main flagship shows, you know their names, and you know the look and feel of those shows. And so um, you have to ring fence funding. You have to set very clear targets. You have to appoint in the appropriate way when, when those opportunities come up. And you have to ask challenging questions about why the list of people is so limited, particularly when they are uh, upper middle class, uh, white and male. Um, uh, and I think that there are different burdens. Channel 4 has a public broadcast remit that's always wanted to be in this space. I think that um, whilst I would say uh, publicly that I think Channel 4 lapsed in the Big Brother years, it seems to have recovered its mojo more recently. Um, um, I've said what I've said about Sky and others. Uh, I think the biggest burden falls to the BBC in this area for obvious reasons, because in the uh, public duty in the new charter renewal will be very important in relation to that. But of course, there's a big role for our newspapers as well in setting the tone on these issues. That is a, we have a free press, we must defend a free press, I defend a free press, 
And so that is a harder nut to crack. And it's why events like this, conversations like this, um, I say I'm hopeful about a generation that has bigger expectations, I think, in relation to this agenda, has to keep pushing the envelope. But money talks. You have to have the budgets ring-fenced to commission and make these programs happen. And you have to pick the people, lift them up, take them through, be prepared to take risks. And sometimes when those risks fail, don't scrap the program, keep going, because failure usually produces results eventually to make this happen and understand why you are making this happen. Because in a multi-platform age, don't be surprised if people will turn to the other social media providers that seem to get this stuff where the mainstream are losing touch. Okay, uh, yes, in the corner there. Thank you. Uh, my name is Francis. I'm chief executive of an NGO here in the UK called Amref Health Africa. We're, uh, you know us, David, I think. We're the, uh, yay! <laughs> Big up, Amref. Thank you very much. I might quote you on that. Um, we're the, for those who don't know us, we're the UK outpost of an African NGO, which is headquartered in Nairobi. It's African-owned. It's the largest African health NGO. It's been around for 60 years. That gives us in the UK office a particular remit and a particular responsibility about the way that we portray our African colleagues and the people who are engaged in the projects that we run. Um, my remit here is about fundraising and it's about communication. And we take an active choice to work really closely with African colleagues to try and depict them, the people we work with, the programs we run, in ways that they would choose to be depicted. Now, I've had that debate in other charities I've worked in, and it's not an easy debate. People don't want to hear it. And I would really um, like to appreciate what you were saying, David, in terms of the choices people make in this country when they're raising money for Africa as to how they depict Africans and they depict different African countries. I, too, was shouting at my radio yesterday every time someone said, Priti Patel is coming back from Africa. Mm -hmm. um, I was at home with the flu yesterday, shouting and saying, Africa, what the country? It was driving me berserk in a way. I'm sure it was for many people. Um, people will say to you, if you work in an NGO in this country, unless you depict people as victims, you will not raise the money. I am here to tell you, yes, you can. You can depict people with honesty and transparency and integrity, and people will give you money to support good work that is worth doing. Because as you rightly say, people are giving money in all sorts of different ways. Um, and I think that we all have to take a responsibility for what we do every day. But what I also find is when I tell, try to tell this story, my staff try to tell this story in the media, nobody wants to hear it. They do not want to hear these positive depictions. They do not want to hear the voices of my colleagues from Africa. They do not want to hear the voices of the women and girls we work with in the health context. Because what they would rather hear is the stories you're talking about on Comet Relief, which appalled me. I agree with you. I work closely with Comet Relief. We have Broke a great partnership. Broke my heart. But I agree. The, the, the sight of children being shown dying, people not being able to have their own voices heard. You know, I've spoken to Comet Relief about this as, you know, as, as a strong partner of ours, but it, it's horrific and you would not do it. Is there anyone but here how from, do we change from the Comet tune? Relief? So my name is Chibwa Henry. I'm one of the international grants managers at Comet Relief. And Amref is actually one, one partner on my portfolio. So hi, Amref. So the money that you, the British people, the public raise actually goes to very good causes. And Amref is evidently here and they're one of the partners that we fundraise for. And 
listening to the debate here, I won't speak to the bigger strategic perspective or comic relief, because I think I'll leave that to our CEO. But being a Zambian, proud Zambian, being British, being diaspora, being part of the African diaspora debate, being part now of the main development debate, I've heard so many um, contrasting debates going on in the same room. In the same voice that John is talking about, us getting up and giving our voice is, is referred to all Dominicans as cleaners and railway clean. I don't know if you've heard anything else, you know. I haven't heard a reference where he's met diasporans who can stand up because, you know, we all didn't go to Oxford. I mean, I went to the University of East London, maybe I'll be CEO one day, I don't know. But you know well, my, what I mean. My, my wife made it from the township in uh, in, in Zimbabwe to and, Cambridge University and got a PhD in Europe. And that Europe is your studies. reference point. And Africa is 54 countries and we are all diverse, as a lot of other people would say here. But that's not my point. My point that I wanted to speak to is that uh, David Lamy acknowledges that Comic Relief has had conversations with him and things are moving on and a lot of change is happening. And I'm sure soon in the media you will see most of that coming out early next year. And I can say that we are making partnerships with um, African filmmakers on the ground. So there's a lot of change and I won't go into that debate. But my challenge to all the media people in here is around the narrative around the diaspora themselves. Because you here perpetuate the transactional relationship where diaspora are only for remittances. Even David Lamy's reference to them has been remittances. And as long as we talk about diasporas, remitters only, we miss the fact that diaspora do not do development. It is a lifestyle and they send money home. And all of us here take that and translate it into the framework and our own lens and call it development well, activity. Hang on, hang on. Look, you've pushed for more complexity and yes. thank you for bringing more complexity and texture to the debate. The reason why I mention remittances is because even at the very least, um, I think you ought to be fair about where most money comes from in the context of this country towards Africa. Yes. And let me just be absolutely clear, uh, which will upset some in the NGO world. I, 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 AMREF have raised the issue about how, and One World has talked about, how you might effectively raise money for the cause. You don't have to show dying children, right? Um, but I would say, even if, for those that say, I'm afraid you have to show dying children to raise money, I would say that the self-perpetuating point of an NGO is not sufficient for my tastes and for my community's tastes to keep on doing that. So, because uh, I, it's too, what, what is the purpose of raising money for World Vision or whatever, if your purpose is actually to do so much damage. And I, and I come back to the point that I raised before, um, whilst I'm glad things have been changing or discussions are changing within the last little while in Comet Relief, Comet Relief Night was not that long ago. The one before was pretty bad. The one before but that was pretty bad. And for a significant amount of time, that has affected the way young people see Africa in this country. That's a whole new generation that are affected because of this perpetual imagery. You're absolutely right. Agency means not just remittances. It means diasporic voices. 
it means that actually many of our NGOs have to be far more present in a constituency like mine, the most diverse. I live in, in Tottenham. Thank you very much. Well, then you know you have to be present, you have to engage, you have to understand the huge talent that is there, not for the pipeline, that you have to be on an equal level with and, and, and really, really being engaged with. So you're absolutely right to put that on the table. My conversation about remittances is not to tell the British public that it's all down to you pressing that button on the night. Because unfortunately, and that's why it's so sad, that lets down the tremendous work that's actually going on on the ground across so many NGOs. If you then use that advert, usually on Sky, I might say, or use that long broadcasting night that you have to undermine that good partnership work that you're doing on the ground and perpetuate an image that has my children, three of my ch- coming back to me and saying, Daddy, please give some money to the poor Africans. That is their image. And that upsets me because it is no different to the image I was fed um, when I was at school over 35 years ago. Um, I agree totally. And that is a debate that has gone on. And I'm, you know, progress is being made and the all strategy is changing. And I won't talk to that. I, I really yes. don't want to talk to that yes. because I think you've had yes. high level di- discussions that I really don't want to unpick yes. uh, uh, here. Yeah. But my point is, it's not just about comic relief. This That's debate true. is wider. There are Absolutely NGOs true. in this room that yeah. campaign yeah. in the same manner That's or campaign. Fair. And I think if you're going to single out comic relief and I understand the burden that comic relief has for raising money, they raise money from the public. All NGOs, most of them here, raise money from the public and understand that responsibility. And we are taking that responsibility forward. And I think the shift, and that's why I was bringing in the diaspora, the shift is not just about the NGOs. It's about the attitude of the media towards all the different agents and act, um, agents that are there and contributing to Africa's development. Okay, I'm just going to take some very quick, we've only got five minutes, and there are a lot of hands up. So I'm going to take you and then you, and then you, that's three, and then you'll be the last one. One of the problems is the commissioning editors of Channel 4, ITB, and to some extent BBC, when you come to them with a proposal, I do a lot of these on Africa, for example, where I originate from, um, and I say to them, let's do a story on so-and-so. If it's a positive story, it's more difficult for me to get them to commission that film or to cooperate on a film than if it's negative. Uh, for example, there's a, there's a great hospital in Africa that's doing great work on brain surgery. I'm very keen on that one. I'm very convinced that I'm going to get nobody to commission that. But when I did a film on a murder that took place in a family in South Africa, which resulted in the loss of uh, the father and mother to the children because the father killed the mother, this one won an award at One World Media last year. You know? so, so what does that tell you? Well, it would be fair to say that, that, that actually that is also true of most... Should I just pass it over to him? Um, of most... Choices. I mean, if there is a choice, they'll, they'll want the bad news. because yeah. You see, news actually is driven by people seeing things which are worse than happened to them. And then they feel better about it. I'm afraid to say that that is the truth. Um, I want to know you've got. My name is uh, Julius Baluto. I'm a journalist. I'm, I'm also founder of Informa East Africa, newspaper, newspaper published in the UK. 
and I'm a child of the two worlds. I'm a child of Africa as well as residing in the UK. I resonate, all these things, they resonate with me. Number one, I'm going to point out the narrative from the media when they focus on Africa. As you mentioned, it's about bad news, death, catastrophes, and all that. And when you come to the West, it's always wonderful, nice. And that's a narrative that Africans on the ground buy because at the end of the day, everyone thinks, wow, London, there's lots of money. You have a brother sent money. Yeah, there's a place of money. But what we don't see, which I think is totally unbalanced, is the truths about these countries in the West. Yesterday, Shelter, uh, the, the charity for homelessness, telling us in the UK now we have over 300,000 homeless people. I meet with them on the trains and everywhere. And I always wish, I wish information was balanced. We relay that to Africa on the ground and people see, wow, we are all in the world facing challenges. Then how can we as one community in the same world work together to eradicate all these problems? My last, last question also to David, thank you for your contribution also, John Snow, is that uh, I wanted to find out, we have very fine brand media from ethnic minorities, a lot of other communities not represented. What can be done by the system to embrace them, to mainstream them, that it will come one day when you watch TV and it won't matter which channel you are watching, the content is appreciated and, uh, and looked up to. Thank you very much. I, I'm, I'm going to give you the wrap-up at the end, uh, David. Um, <clears throat> yes, sorry. Uh, for me, this all comes back to politics. And I didn't get taught politics in school. And I don't know how different the curriculum is in private schools, but I bet you they probably get taught about politics. And, um, for example... I only found out at the Labour conference this year that you can join a trade union if you don't work in a public sector job. And none of my friends knew that either. And so I, my question is, how important do you think it is to inject politics into school curriculum at a young age to support and build on the momentum of things like Grime for Corbyn and that kind of stuff? Very good. And then we'll take to the last corner here, the, these two young ladies. So it was only a statement that I believe Priti Patel is from Uganda, so it would have been lovely to say that she'd come back from home. <laughs> you know, that was all yeah, I wanted great, to say. Great, great, good, yeah. great. And then next to you, left. Oh, all right, yes. Um, just uh, add, to add some a bit more diversity. Um, I'm from... <laughs> I'm from Korea. Asia exists. We're talking about Africa too much, so please. Yeah, go on. So I'm from Korea, where you, people here describe it as feist. I really don't like that term, like feist. But what, there was time early this year and through the summer, all people talking about North Korea. But, you know, they're all talking about war. There might be war. You know, there might be third world war because of these two crazy guys, Trump and Kim Jong-un. But what do you know about Korea? But while I'm seeing this kind of media coverage, I just realized how people, like, how dare they talking about all war? But, like if, have you like ever tried to talk to people in Korea actually? Because they were talking about all like tensions really like rising between South and North and then USA. But if people in South Korea, they were like, what? We, we don't worry about at all. We're not worrying about 
But like my mother knows who is like British, and she was like, "John, when you can't go to Korea, you can't go home because I'll be really worried about you every second." <laughs> But like, so I just want to ask, like, if you like um kind of covers like the war or kind of tension about Korea, what would you do? What would you go and then try to find more, try to know more, and how to, you know, do uh, like as you pass the microphone along. Uh, it's worth pointing out, quite interestingly, I noticed particularly the BBC correspondents who were in South Korea had tremendous difficulty finding anybody who was remotely worried about nuclear war. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they were trawling up and down the streets saying, yeah. "Are you worried about the war? Yeah. What war? Are you worried about? Are you worried about a, a, a nuclear attack? What nuclear attack? North Korea? Oh, North Korea? No, no, no." So yes, um, just this a really is the last question. Oh. Right. Okay. Um, it's just a really quick one. So I've um, worked for the last six years working with people <clears throat> with learning disabilities, doing comms and storytelling with them. Um, and I've tried to get stories into the press about the amazing work that we do and have really struggled with this sort of polarised narrative of either they're sort of, it's the channel for superheroes, Paralympic people, uh, and they're superhuman and they can achieve anything, or, <laughs> or they're to be pitied um, and they can achieve nothing. And I've been really struggling to get a kind of, yeah, a, com a sort of more complicated story into the press. And I was just wondering, have you got any tips on <laughs> how to get that out there, how to get that story out there? Mental health is the same problem. I mean, it is very, very, very difficult to, to get both those themes explored very fully. Um, but we're all working at it, in fact, trying. David, rescue me. I want to... <laughs> I want to absolutely underline that whilst we've talked a lot about Africa, um, we could have talked about Asia. Uh, we could have talked about an old idea that would be very much part of this, which is a kind of Orientalism and a narrow perception of the way that you uh, write about Asia and Asian people and the many, many countries and traditions within uh, that continent and subcontinent. Um, I think that actually nearer to us in terms of Eastern Europe, there's a poor understanding of life in so many of the countries that make up Eastern Europe. And of course, I am from, my parents are from Guyana on the tip of South America, and there is a very limited understanding of South America and Latin America. So uh, whilst we focused on Africa, it would be remiss if we didn't put absolutely centre stage that this narrative story would would be true for much of the world. Um, I, I think that the politics is central to this discussion. Um, politics takes a certain kind of literacy. It's a contested business. Um, and so it's not always in the interest of the state to uh, populate education um, in this area. But I, you know, I want to say that my view is that old European societies, and this is not obviously just our own, um, and in some ways I would say that Britain, you would say, is probably more progressive or appears more progressive than many of our continental um, cousins across the water. I think this conversation, for example, in France would be a very different conversation. Let's be clear about that. Having said that... Um, Um, my view is that people are up for systemic change. Uh, they want system change. Um, big ideas. How do you really do radical? 
And that means that certain groups of people are going to lose out in that, in that context. And that gets you back to the politics. I'm very pleased to hear the mention of ethnic mi- minority media that exist in this country. I guess the challenge is when we talk about ethnic minorities, really, is, of course, we focus on the ethnic. We don't focus so much on the minority status. And, you know, this isn't America where you have, you know, African-Americans or Latinos who are huge, significant blocks and numbers in the country. And, of course, in a minority context, the majority can ignore your concerns or your concerns are dependent basically on goodwill. And that's, that's the rub, because if you depend solely on goodwill, change is a long time coming. You have to legislate and act radically to get goodwill. And you need to be honest, and not God, get about to get change, and you need to be honest about what that change will involve and who will lose out. And so that's the nub of the issues. I'm certainly grateful to participate in this conversation, but I guess it's why I, I'm finding I'm going in the opposite direction. They say you sort of start off on the left and radical and you get a little bit more conservative as you get older. Uh, I'm finding I'm finding a bit maybe like John, that as I get older, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I'm just, I'm, you know, I'm getting more and more radical because I see the same old arguments perpetuating the same old elite. Thank you for listening to the One World Media Podcast. In episode two, Ingrid Falk, a prize-winning documentary maker and senior executive producer, will be discussing authentic storytelling with a panel of journalists, filmmakers, and editors. To find out more about what we do, go to oneworldmedia.org.uk and follow us on Twitter at OneWM. The One World Media Podcast is edited and mixed by weareunedited.com.